Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. I have a really interesting and important conversation to share with you today. It's with June Kausith, also known as Ju McKay, which is her artist name. And Ju McKay is a professional artist, a storytelling coach, a wellness consultant. She's worked in environmental justice. She is a powerful Asian American woman who really, we have a conversation, which I actually thought it was going to be more about ancestral connection, which we really do dive into in the beginning. But because it cannot be avoided that we are recording this in the time of still shelter in place in California, where we both live, in the time of COVID, in a time of deep, deep change. And we end up really diving into how we stay rooted in times of change, in times of crisis, which is not limited to COVID times. It's a part of being alive in this time. June talks about her name as part of a Thai family, but born in the United States, and how renaming herself Jim McKay was empowering for her. We talk about ancestral connection practices, especially the fact that we tend to overcomplicate ritual and the tools and the things and the stuff. And I love how the story of how her first ancestral altar was built. Then we move into what it's like being um, an Asian American person in these times of COVID. Uh, And she even shares a bit more about the model minority myth and her feelings about former presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, that I frankly find very interesting and enlightening. And then we really take on her practices and her recommendations for staying rooted in times of change. Her three M's feel like, whoa, 
put this on a sticky note, the three M's of movement, meditation, and morning pages. And then we really get real about releasing the need to take on the world's suffering as our own. She educates us on heart coherence, which I find to be beautiful and fascinating. Seeing creation and creativity as a form of self-regulation and using this time to envision our future in a different way. And for those of us who are like, I'm in fight, flight, or freeze, I'm in future tripping, like it's really hard for me to get into envisioning a future. She talks about how we can sort of get out of our own way. We can get out of our own heads. And then she shares more about her connection to the ancestral spiritual teachings of Buddhism for this time and the importance of sangha and creating community to help and be a part of dreaming big for a new and better world to come. So it's a really special and important conversation I'm really delighted to share with you. So here it is with Juma Kay. Take a breath, man. I can't breathe as well now that I'm pregnant. No. I'm like, oh, the lungs need space. Yeah, you're mm. sharing your lungs with someone else, but what a what a beautiful gift to be able to breathe right now. Oof. Yeah. I know there's something about like this virus and the way it like takes breath that makes like those of us who are of healthy body to like, what if we could just breathe deeper for those who can't mm-hmm. right now, you know, it's like a little blessing. Yeah. <sighs> I'm doing that. Breathing with you. Yeah. So June Kausith or Juma Kay, welcome. Wow. Thank you so much for saying my last name correctly. <laughs> well, you sort of gave me a heads up. <laughs> Yeah, let's. Can we just talk about that for a second about your name and having your ancestral heritage and and names? Having a name that isn't like John or Sarah, (laughs) you know, and and what's that like? Well, June was the month I was born in. Fun fact I have a sister named May. We're 11 years apart, and it's only just us two. And yes, you will never forget our birthdays, both of our birthdays either. And in hmm. so so my ancestors are from Thailand. And in our culture, we have a Thai name. And we also have a play name. And I actually don't know most people's Thai names, but I know them by their play name. And so Juma K is actually my first middle and last name. My middle name is Marissa in the anglicized version at least <laughs> but if i were to say it in thai it would be marisa so it's it's been fun embodying that name and i also love the name that i was born with yeah so you say juma k is your artist name yeah so as of today i am a storytelling coach who primarily supports women and people of color in being able to find clarity in their message and really tell their story from an embodied place. Professionally, I have a background in theater and also community organizing, working in rape crisis until transitioning into starting my own business and really supporting 
people in first and foremost, being able to reframe the stories they are telling themselves. And I credit so much of that to my artist background, because when I think back on the days where I used to spit spoken word, or I would be rocking on different stages through whatever medium, I felt like it was my responsibility to be able to shift the energy of the room. There's an alchemy and there's an art to it. And I studied theater in college. One of my most influential teachers was formerly a physics major. And when I asked him why he would go from physics to theater, because they seem like they're so different, one of the most beautiful things he said that will always stand out to me when I think about how it is I show up in this work is that it's not that much different. It's just about the transference of energy. And so our responsibility as as leaders and as healers is being able to shift the energy of any space that we walk in. And I feel like it's a superpower. And I feel like through returning to my spiritual practice, I've also been able to find the intersections of all of this. And it's still a journey that I'm on. And a lot of that has been being able to reclaim my own ancestral heritage and what that means for me to be both of someone of of Thai descent and being born and raised in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has, I'm really curious about how you've reconnected to your ancestral heritage and like what, maybe what your practice is. I know I watched your amazing TEDx talk where you talk about your connection with food. Like what is, what does it mean to you to be connected to your ancestors and maybe what does it look like? <sighs> so, I love how we opened up talking about breath because I think that we tend to overcomplicate what it looks like to connect with our ancestors as if we need to know these chants or these specific rituals. And what I've been learning is that if I can just simply reconnect with my body and learn how to ground myself, especially in times like this, then I know that that is doing a service to the ones before me and also to the next generation. I know that this is something that we talk so much about in our world of doing ancestral healing work, but Mm. I think that it's a constant reminder to return to breath. And I do have my altar. I didn't have a guidebook or anything on how to create it, but when I first started with it, (laughs) literally I took Amazon cardboard boxes and put a cloth over it. And I was like, Oh Oh, my gosh, this is such a disgrace to my ancestors. (laughs) And it wasn't the beginning you needed. Yeah. My 30th birthday where I was like, I want to explore what it's like to have my own altar. And it was actually on new year's Eve where I was like, fireworks are blasting People are partying outside and this doesn't feel like the way I want to enter into this new year. I would like to enter this next phase feeling grounded and in my body because in our culture, we have New Year's that lasts for three days. 
to give us that time to transition, to release or reflect on the lessons learned from the previous year mm-hmm. and hopefully apply them into the next with the intention that we are clearing out old karma and becoming better contributors of the healing of this planet. And as I was building my altar, I called my mom because when you don't know what you're doing, sometimes you got to call mom. Mm-hmm. And she's like, come over. And so I went over and I was privileged enough to grow up in the same household my whole life. And yet there's still parts of the house that I didn't explore. And she opened up the closet in this bedroom that is solely dedicated to an altar. And she had this whole set that had been collecting dust. And she's like, this is for you. So I feel like when we start off with the curiosity of what it means to connect with our ancestors and find our own ways of what that means to us, then I feel like the universe or the ancestors start responding. They're like, okay, now you're curious. And now I can start showing you the evidence that says I've always been here with you. So those have been one of the many instances where I'm like, oh, okay, I'm I'm not crazy. (laughs) Hmm. And it started with a couple Amazon boxes. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like so tacky. And- no, I really like that because I think a lot of people can feel really intimidated by, you know, just like the inner perfectionist, the like mm-hmm. want to do it right, good girl mentality of um, having the perfect altar table or the perfect tools or getting so caught up in buying the th- buying stuff. Oh, yes. I went, like, yeah, I went to Thai town and I looked at these sets and I'm like, $300? That's actually why I went home. And I was like, I'm just going to stitch a couple Amazon boxes together. <laughs> That's great. I, I really, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a great way to start. And that's really what I encourage people to do who are like, I'm really curious about connecting with my ancestors. You know, I have a complicated relationship with them or um, I don't know who they are or, you know, I, it's, I'm multiracial or uh, the story of immigration assimilation, it makes it complicated. And it's, it's the just starting that is so key because what you're sharing with me is a very different story from mine and, and look what unfolded and your mom said, oh, here is this yeah. thing. <laughs> just is a beautiful, beautiful way it all unfolds for each of us. Yeah. Well, I always invite my clients on our first session to have a place where they can be grounded and I invite them to create their own altar. Most people, actually everybody is very intimidated by what that means. And so all I ask of them to do is to start with an offering of some sort, whether it is a plant or a stone or a cup of water and either a picture of somebody they'd like to call in to support them in this journey or write their name out just to simply acknowledge that that we are not alone and that we are being supported and that entity, that person doesn't even have to be somebody who is of our blood lineage. I think that it's important we acknowledge our chosen ancestors, the ones who came before us that perhaps took up space and and spoke their truth or stood their ground in order to be an embodiment of what's possible for us when we are 
allowing ourselves to take up space as well. So I think about <sighs> Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kochiyama, who were the very first embodiments of Asian American activists from the civil rights movement. Because when I was younger, I didn't know about any Asian Americans who were breaking the stereotypes of the model minority myth. And now I think about, okay, what is the ancestor I want to become when I pass mm. on? What is the legacy I want to leave behind? And so sometimes if you can't think about a chosen ancestor or somebody of your blood lineage, then what would it look like to call upon your future self and place mm. that on your altar and communicate with them or even your inner child? Hmm. Wow. Hot tip. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> beautiful. That's so, so beautiful. I'm curious. So we're recording this late April, COVID times. And I'm just wondering how you're feeling about being an Asian American right now. Hmm. Well, I feel like it's easy to get caught up in the fear everything that's happening and the fear yeah. is totally valid. I will say that even though I identify as Asian American, I feel like I haven't received as many threats because I'm more ethnically ambiguous. My partner, on the other hand, he's not as ambiguous. And so he just went back to work after being off for over a month and the reason why he chose to take off that month was not only to, of course, respect the stay at home order, mm. but because of the real fear of what it means to be Asian American. And I think that there's many Asian Americans who are now awakening to the reality that racism is still alive and very, very well. Many who may have known it before, but now they're seeing it tenfold in their faces. And I also think that this is an invitation for us to not victimize ourselves as Asian Americans, but to see the interconnectedness of how racism has specifically attacked people of color, Black bodies in particular, queer, trans folks. And so I feel like while it is important to acknowledge the real racism that is being targeted towards Asian Americans, this isn't anything new. And yeah. I feel like it's also bringing up the repetition of history when we think about what happened during, during World War II and the Japanese internment camps. Right. And how we still have so much work to do. So I feel like the main targets right now have been people who pass as East Asian, but because I identify as Asian American, it is still important for me to speak about these topics and to also lean into hmm, what does it look like for me as an Asian American right now to take up space and to speak my truth and to say mm. that I will not tolerate this and also that we are resourceful and we are resilient and that 
while it's easy to lean into the fear, one of the most challenging things for me to do in this moment is to lean deeper into radical compassion. And I have a, a great example because there's all this debate that's been unfolding with Andrew Yang. And I will say that when he first came out, I was like, yes, Andrew is a badass. And then he yeah. came out with this harmful article that was a call to action for Asian Americans to prove their Americanness by wearing red, white, and blue, and by essentially perpetuating the, the model minority myth. And it was just like wrong on so many levels. And he used the Japanese Americans as an example of what it looks like to be a good citizen during World War II. And I'm just like, really, really? <laughs> what history books have you been reading? And while all the Asian Americans I knew from like the progressive spaces were just like down with Andrew Yang, I knew he was a sellout. I was like, you know what? I still love the brother. Not because of his politics, but because I can only reflect on the lack of spaces he has had himself to heal from his own racialized trauma. Mm -hmm. And this is racism being played out again, pitting us against each other. There was a lot of people who were just like, wow, June, I thought so much better of you. And I also observing how so many people's triggers are high right now. So how oh, much of my yeah. truth do I actually want to speak on this issue? Mm -hmm. Or do I just return back to my practices and my embodiment? Mm. Mm. I'm sorry to say I did not know that about Andrew Yang. Yeah, it, it hurt, but... I really thank you for telling me. I really thank you for telling me. That is very interesting. And I think that's such a good point about... We're in a reactive place right now, very reactive, which makes sense in a place of deep uncertainty. Yeah. And for you, and I just really hear and feel you saying like, what I'm feeling as an Asian American is like, it's time to take up space and that's intense, <laughs> but it's time. And that's, that's a beautiful response. And also it can be a time to rest as well and to turn off the news and to not get swept up in it because I feel like we shouldn't have anything to prove. We shouldn't. Mm -mm, yeah. Hmm. But I think about why we have the model minority myth in the first place and how so much of that comes from white supremacy and, yeah. and our internalized oppression of not feeling like enough. Therefore we need to strive. We need to succeed and we need to not speak up because why get caught up in these struggles that aren't our own? Mm-hmm black versus white as an Asian American, as long as I don't say anything, they're not going to notice me or I'm not going to get attacked. Or as long as I embody whiteness, then I'm safe. And so when I say it's right. time to take up space, I say that as a way to invite people to not feel like they need to be the model minority right now in order to be safe. 
Ooh. Yes, may it be so. Yeah, thank you for voicing that. I'd love to talk more about practices that you mention for keeping rooted in times of change, which is something you are really modeling and showing leadership around right now for the folks you're supporting in your greater community. And I'd love to bring our community in on this because I do feel, I physically feel in my body a collective unrootedness, like a collective reactivity, a collective fear. And I'd love to hear what you have to say about, and I think this really is is taking what you're saying about taking up space as an Asian American, not embodying the model minority myth. And just let's just go deeper here on like, how can we, and resting, like how can we stay rooted and be a part of this very rapid change that has has always been happening and now it's really picking up steam, right? How we can work with these times. So like all of us, I am also a work in progress. So I can't prescribe one particular technique to say, this is what you need to do to be grounded, because I think that it's important for people to discover what that looks like for themselves. And I think that if we're looking at it from a lens of trauma, and I by no means am an expert, but I can only share what I feel has helped me, is that it's important to assess whether we are in our hyper or our hypo arousal, if we're in anxiousness and fear, or if we are in complete dissociation and sadness, and there's nothing wrong with any of those feelings. It's just a compass that our body is asking us to pay attention to and to also be mindful as to not react to it in a way that makes us feel any less than. And so what's been helping me is that when I notice I am, I'm outside of my own window of tolerance, then it's, it's important for me to either move my body or to sit completely still. It looks different every single day. Before I got on this call, I was feeling anxious and I was trying mm-hmm. to meditate and I'm just like, this isn't happening right now. So I put on a mm-hmm. track and I just started dancing around my apartment. And then I sat down and I'm like, okay, I'm ready now. Let this be fun. Let this feel like an opportunity for me to reconnect with a beautiful soul where we're sharing a cup of tea and let me not take myself so seriously right now. Mm-hmm. And I've also been journaling a lot. I think about what is the legacy I want to leave behind and how is that going to be documented? And sometimes when I write, it's just it just feels like a rant and nothing good is coming out of it. But then I'll look back on it maybe three, four, five months from today, five years from today to see how wise I was at that time or how much growth I've experienced. So I like to use the three M's, which is movement, meditation, and morning pages. 
you can do one, you can do all three, but when you're able to do activities that bring you back to your body and also take as many opportunities as you can to breathe deeply, that is also a reflection of what is going to be possible in our outer world. Like if we're able to expand our inner world and expand our lungs, then I love how you said we were, we're able to, to also give that air to those who may not have as much of it. And I will say that one of my biggest challenges I've had to overcome and I'm still overcoming is releasing the need to take on the world's suffering as my own. Uh-huh. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Can we talk more about that? Yeah. So when I watch the news and I am seeing more people who are getting sick or I'm feeling bad because somebody on my feed is asking for money and I'll, I'll share when I can. But I'm also like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here surviving too. And I don't want to say just surviving because I feel like I'm doing more than that. But I'm definitely that person who will give more resources than I have to somebody else in need. So it's yeah. been to my own detriment. And I feel mm. like through my spiritual practice, by coming back to breath, one of the things that has helped me the most is being able to transmute that energy of sympathy or sadness into a deep intention of how it is I hope that this person can feel. Like, what is it that they need more of? And I think that it's important that we do this in a way that doesn't spiritually bypass the actual suffering, that we acknowledge the suffering exists. And if we can envision this person who is suffering in our hearts, Imagine that we are giving them a great warm hug. I feel like that has helped me so much. (laughs) Like, okay, I don't want to further perpetuate the fear that you are already feeling in your body. And this has also helped in how I show up in my sessions because a lot of my sessions with my clients have been about space holding and allowing them to feel that emotion and me not trying to fix anything, but generating the emotion of deep love for this person and acceptance for exactly where it is they're at. So I I feel like if we can lean deeper into that love and that radical compassion, again, this is sending out an energetic frequency into what it is we also want to attract for the collective. And we know that there's scientific evidence for this too. When we look at heart coherence and and heart frequency, that our heart literally emanates this electromagnetic field that extends as far out as eight, 10 feet. And if you're a hardcore monk or somebody who's constantly practicing, then that meta can expand out to your neighbors and to your city and to the world. And that's why it's so important for us to return to our own practices. We cannot pour from an empty cup. 
we need to operate from this place of alignment. And it's not like, okay, I reached alignment and I'm done with the work. It's an everyday practice that we get to return to over and over again. And I will say that one of the things that has helped me the most is having a community to do that alongside with. Because part of what colonization has taught us is that we're meant to do all of this alone. Yeah. I was reading yesterday about the history of loneliness. And um, actually, it's it's mentioned in like historical tests in popular culture, which is obviously framed through the lens of white supremacy, is that it really didn't come to be until like the last 150 years. And that human loneliness is a result of um, rugged individualism, capitalism, the idea that we have to do it alone and that um, we don't need help and that we, we need to live alone. We need to be alone. So I love that you're, that just like blew my mind because I'm just so interested in loneliness mm. and the fact that many have dubbed this the age of loneliness. And now here we are, you and I are speaking at a time when so many folks feel v- abandoned or alone. Uh, they're with themselves, they're with their wounds. And um, just to bring in this piece of taking on others' suffering as their own, I think that comes from this sort of feeling that our only worth to each other is if we can like give advice or save each other. Mm. And I love that this reframe, this reminder, especially bringing it to the heart coherence, that some of the greatest gifts we can give each other right now in times of crisis, in times of change, is that energetic hug, is the holding space, is holding the vision of the future self of that person navigating this, right? That creates resilience. Sometimes if we can help, we help. If it's money or if it's like introducing them to someone that will change their life. But I think it's just as important to let them have their process. Yeah. Nothing needs to be fixed. Just allow your body to process. And I feel like whenever we talk about what it means to be an empath or a highly sensitive person, it's like, oh, I just feel the world and I can't help it. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but we're all empaths. We all came into this world highly (laughs) sensitive. And there was just experiences that happened along the way that made us shut down, dissociate, or even blew up our energetic channels even more. And I feel like this is a superpower that every single one of us possesses. And now that many of us have been in quarantine or have been in isolation, all of the stuff is starting to come out. And that stuff that's coming out is not anything new. It's always been there. It's just how is it that you are now going to respond or react to it? And many of us are working even harder, feeling like we need to be productive right now because we have the time and the spaciousness. And there's some people who are killing it. They're doing amazing. Why? Because this has always been inside of them. And now this is the moment to celebrate like, wow, I've been, I've been building other people's dreams and now I get the time to just create for myself. And I think it's important for people to know that you don't have to create with the intention that you're going to start a business or produce your next best-selling album. I think that it's important to create 
without an attachment to an outcome. If you can see it as your means of self-regulation to bring yourself back to your window of tolerance, to create from a place of play and joy, then there becomes less pressure to feel like I need to be loud on the internet right now. And then there's other people who are like, I just need a rest. I just need to stop taking action. And there's those people who are comparing themselves to the ones who are being active. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know what? This is what your body has been asking for. And you get to honor it, especially for some of my clients who are mothers. They're coming to me feeling like I'm not doing enough right now. And my question to them or to any of you who are parents is, what are the memories you hope to walk away with, with your children, with your family as a result of this experience? Because the busy work is always going to be there. But that moment of being present with your loved ones is a huge part of the legacy that you get to leave behind. I totally struggle with this. It's so interesting as someone who is navigating this pregnant like I'm already sleeping <laughs> so much. Like it started in January for me where it was just like, oh, I think this my experience of of growing this baby is going to be like one of deep rest, one that makes me very uncomfortable <laughs> because mm-hmm. capitalism is strong in me and, you know, productivity equaling my worth. Like that's always something I'm working internally. You know, it's just, it's, I don't know if it'll ever leave me, (laughs) maybe someday. Mm -hmm. So it's been so interesting to navigate this experience. And, and you just really helped me just now when you, you framed it to, you know, the beloved parents out there about what memories do you want to walk away from this time? And I'm, and I'm thinking about it from like, this perspective of, do I want to look back at this time and be thinking like, will I really look back and be like, well, I didn't work hard enough while mm-hmm. I was pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting thing to navigate, you know, and some people have to work yeah. right now. And mm-hmm. I acknowledge that. And the system is unfair. <laughs> I acknowledge yeah. that. And they tend to have, you know, they tend to be black and brown bodies. And I acknowledge that. And then for those of us who are not in that position, I just, I really appreciate you bringing in legacy. I love that you keep bringing that in. It's so important to me too. It really reframe, it, it sort of gets me out of like an ego-y place. It gets me out of, um, an, you know, an unhealthy relationship to workplace. It gets me into a long-term vision and not just like, a hundred years, but like deep time, like the spirals of time, like what legacy am I leaving? And what legacy, what is the legacy of this time for me and for each other? Yeah. I think it's safe to say that nobody knows what the heck is going to happen next. Yeah. But if we can use this time to imagine and envision what this future could look like, no matter how far out it seems, then I truly believe 
we can actually get closer to that. We need to have a vision. We need to have something to strive for. If it's world peace, then let that be your vision. It may not happen in your lifetime, but the work you are doing in this lifetime will ripple out into the next ones. And it's a cycle because the next generation also gets to do their own work and their rediscovery. For those of us who are listening, who are like, I'm having a hard time getting into the visioning part. Mm. I'm so short term. I'm so in the now uh, or, I'm, or the way I'm visioning is future tripping. Like it's all anxiety. <laughs> like wh- what do you say to those of us who are like, oh yeah, I would love to, I would really love to get in on the envisioning a, a different, better world. Like how do we do that? Mm. It's a beautiful question because I go back and forth too of oh, maybe this is too idealistic and optimistic. And back when I was facilitating workshops with social justice organizations, and I would ask them this question of what they wanted their future to look like. There were some people who drew pictures of burning cop cars or buildings crumbling. And then it's like, okay, well, but then what happens after that? (laughs) right that's important yeah and I think what I would invite people to do is to revisit your inner child and if you can like especially if, if you have children because I hear this a lot from my clients who are parents that their children remind them of of what it feels like to play again. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're having a difficult time of being able to envision what the future can look like, what is one activity you have not done in a long time that brings you back to that inner child? And I feel like it's a big stretch for many of us who have been operating from the neck up. And so sometimes it could just be as basic as turning on a song that gets you moving your body or being able to scribble and to just do activities that get you out of your head. And of course I could send you so many guided meditations to help you visualize that there is no one right way. Yeah. But I also feel like being a part of a community that can help expand what this future could potentially look like can help us get out of our own way. And part of my own reclamation process has been returning to the Buddhist practices that I grew up with. When I was a child, I did it because I was supposed to, and I didn't know what any of the chants meant. I still don't know what a lot of them mean. (laughs) Yeah, but they bring you comfort, Well, don't they? I feel like I grew up with karma being used as an excuse as to why situations were the way they were. Uh Or my mom would always say, oh, I'm suffering in this lifetime because of my last lifetime's karma. And so I'm paying it Mm. off now. Mm. And uh, my teacher today is Thich Nhat Hanh Mm -hmm. through his books and through his recordings and listen to a lot of Dharma teachers now, which has helped me so much. And I love this concept of engaged Buddhism, which is 
our responsibility as Buddhists to not be silent in the face of injustice mm-hmm. and for us to actually be involved in social justice, but from that place of groundedness as we are doing our practices is a very radical act, especially for people of color who, yeah. or just people in general who have experienced trauma, who may not know how to sit down, who don't know how to dream because yeah. they've had to be in fight or flight for so long. Coming back to a sangha has helped me or creating my own sangha. And for those who don't know what sangha is, in Buddhism, we have the triple gem, which is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the sangha. Buddha literally translates to enlightened one. There's been many Buddhas before Gautama. There's been many after him. And so how is it that we can do the work to awaken the Buddha within us? And to Dharma, which is the universal laws things that can have always been here since the beginning of time. And then there's the Sangha, which is, oh, and the Dharma we can see as the teachings. And then Mm -hmm. Sangha is often the most neglected piece, which is the community. And what I love about Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings is that he says the next manifestation of Buddha will not arrive as an individual, but will arrive as a sangha, as a community. And I think many people have Mm. this conception that, oh, I'm going to disappear to the mountains and find enlightenment. And perhaps you've been on a Vipassana retreat to where, at least this happened for me, after my 10 days, I was like, wow, I think I got it now. And as soon as I came home, all the triggers came back tenfold. Mm -hmm. And so what did I do? I created my own sangha. I created the community I needed in order to stay accountable to my practice. I created a sangha so that I could have a space to dream big with other people so that we can all increase our heart coherence as a collective. Oh, I'm sighing with pleasure from those words. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Jim McKay, thank you so much for blessing us with um, your wisdom and your expertise and educating us. I so appreciate all your generosity of your time and your presence and your powerful voice that I could listen to all day. We're going to complete here. I, I'm wondering if you if you could let people know, because you're providing amazing support right now, and I think that'll be available on your YouTube channel, if you can just let people know where to find you and interact with you and get you know your medicine right now. So one of the ways that I have been playing ever since the stay-at-home order was announced is by producing this series where I'm going live almost every day with somebody in the field of coaching, wellness, or the arts about what it is or what they aren't doing to stay rooted in these times of change. (laughs) And it's brought me so much joy. I've honestly been creating it without an attachment to an outcome. I've learned a lot about technology 
by the way. <laughs> but it's honestly just been so much fun for me to be able to have these conversations, these real-time conversations to lift the veil of what it looks like for us as leaders and as healers right now because we're going through our own work too. And I think that if we can talk more about that, it normalizes how it is anybody might be feeling right now. That not all of us have it together, but we can figure it out <laughs> along the way. So if you are interested in hearing these wonderful conversations of what it is we're doing to stay rooted and what is it we're learning to release, then you can go to www.yourstorymedicine.com. And from there, you'll get an invitation to join the private Facebook group. And if Facebook is not your thing, I am going to be repurposing it into YouTube videos as well as a podcast. So mm. find me there, yourstorymedicine.com. Also on Instagram at Jumakay. I'm not going to spell it for you, but... If you They're go seeing to, it right now yeah, on their feet. They okay, know. Great. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I would just love to connect. And if any of what I shared resonates with you, um, it brings me so much joy to also know who is benefiting from this on the other end. Because, again, this is an opportunity for all of us to to increase our heart frequencies and just be real with each other. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for just everything you shared today. I feel like very much shifted um, in all the in all the right ways. So I'm grateful to you and all that you shared with us. Thank you. And I am so excited for this ancestor you are bringing into the world <laughs> and my deepest, highest intention for you is to lean into that rest and know that that is mm. one of the biggest contributions that you can give right now and that that is more than enough because it's also an invitation for the rest of us to rest. Mm. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.